Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, and I can hardly believe I'm saying this, I have the absolute honour of interviewing Professors Robert and Elizabeth Bjork. Robert Bjork is Distinguished Research Professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of California, Los Angeles. Robert's research focuses on human learning and memory and on the implication of the science of learning for instruction and training. Elizabeth Bjork is Professor of Psychology and Senior Vice Chair in the Psychology Department, also at the University of California. Elizabeth's main area of research has been the study of human memory, in particular the role that inhibitory processes such as those underlying goal-directed forgetting and memory updating play in creating an adaptive human memory system, flipping heck, as well as countless prestigious honours that they have received across their distinguished career, they now have a new one, the first married couple on the Mr Barton Maths Podcast. I genuinely thought my life had peaked when I interviewed Dylan William, but it has risen to a whole new level when I got to interview not one, but two of my heroes. Along with Dylan and Dan Willingham, Robert and Elizabeth Bjork have had a profound effect on my career, making me realise, amongst other things, that forgetting is beneficial, learning learning and performance are different, and learning should be desirably difficult. A huge, huge thank you to Will Emney for playing matchmaker and helping this interview take place. I owe you, Will, big time. So in a wide-ranging conversation, we covered the following things and more. What misconceptions do you find people have about how memory works? What is the relationship between learning and performance? And can it really be inverse? Should learning be desirably difficult in the initial skill acquisition phase? And how does this tie in with cognitive load theory? Then we have the most requested question on Twitter. Is there an optimal spacing schedule? And stay tuned for my takeaway at the end of the podcast for much more on this. Then I ask, what is worse? Too short a spacing interval, so students have not had time to forget, or too long, so students have completely forgotten? Do the benefits of interleaving suggest that deliberate practice, the breaking down of skills and immediate feedback, is actually not an effective form of instruction? After decades of work in the field of memory, what is the piece of research that has surprised them most? And I tell you what, it has significant implications for how we develop our students to become problem solvers. And to top it off, Robert Bjork has a selection of book and website recommendations, all of which I link to in the show notes. So in the takeaway section after the interview, I delve deeper into a few points that I've been thinking loads about since the conversation with Robert and Elizabeth. I look again at assessment for learning, including the use of exit tickets, and I feel I'm finally at a place where I am happy with AFL's role in lessons. I look at a way to calculate an optimal spacing schedule. I discuss the aforementioned implication of how memory works for the development of problem solving. And finally, I touch upon the role of motivation in learning with respect to desirable difficulties and the incredible concept of a pretest that Robert and Elizabeth introduced me to. It's a big old fat tasty takeaway this time, so if that's of interest, please stick around at the end of the interview. 
I've written up all my takeaways to many of the concepts and research papers we discuss in this interview, along with hundreds of others, on my research page. You can find that at mrbartonmaths.com, go to teachers, then click on research. I really hope you find it both interesting and useful. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your colleagues. This one in particular might be of interest to your less mathematically inclined workmates, and you can ensure them that for once, all references to numbers and algebra are kept to an absolute minimum. I'm a usual plea, if you've got time to give us a review on iTunes, then the egomaniac in me will be delighted. As long as it's a good one, of course. Anyway, without further ado, because you'll be desperate for me to shut up now, let me introduce Professors Robert and Elizabeth Bjork. Needless to say, I am completely out of my depth talking to them, but I just about managed to muddle through. I really hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Get your pen and paper at the ready, and as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, so we're going to start, as we always do, with some math speed dating questions. So now I've heard, uh, Professor Robert Bjork, that you do not have a favourite number, but Professor Elizabeth Bjork, you do. So, um, Elizabeth, I would like to ask you, what is your favourite number and why? My favourite number is four. And I like it because um, it's a good family size. It's a good um, number for playing lots of games like golf foursomes and uh, two teams of pairs. Uh, I like it. Um, I also like it. I like the way it looks. So that's my favorite number. That's a lovely, that's an excellent choice. I like that. A lovely square number as well for all our maths listeners. So that's an excellent choice. Already you're endearing yourself to the the maths listening public here. That's fantastic. Um, And I'd like to ask you both, and I'm not letting you get away with this one, Bob, I'm afraid. What what was your favorite topic in maths as students? It's kind of two phases. I I really liked um, algebra and then later uh, differential equations. Oh, nice. What was it about algebra that you liked? Oh, just kind of being able to find out something from other things, you know, like it, at that point it seemed like a kind of magic or something that uh, <laughs> maneuver things around and deduce things. So, uh, <clears throat> and it was so orderly. Uh, so I really liked uh, algebra at that phase of school. Fantastic. Um, and how about yourself, Elizabeth? Well, um, I sort of had two favorite maths subjects. Um, in high school, I really liked geometry, both uh, plain and um, uh, solid. Solid. Sorry, couldn't think of that. <laughs> I was going to say three dimensional, but um, and then uh, I think in college, yes, I liked uh, I liked uh, calculus, differential equations. So both of us, it turns out, were math majors as undergrads. We got interested in psychology. Uh, what you, very late. Very late, like uh, just before going to grad school. Oh, fantastic! Fantastic! Oh, you, you, I'm, I'm happy with this. You both seem to be uh, quite uh, mathematical, <clears throat> so this this is all, always positive for this podcast. That's fantastic. And um, could I ask you my last uh, speed dating question? Is if neither of you were involved in um, research or academia uh, or psychology at all, uh, is there any other profession that you, you could ever see yourselves doing? 
Well, I saw myself at one point becoming a professional golfer. Oh, uh, nice, nice. But that was so long ago they would have uh, drafted me for Vietnam if I hadn't <laughs> gone on to grad school. So, and that sort of changed everything. I mean, as far as alternative fields, uh, I think I've been intrigued by the research and implementation of alternative energy sources. I think that would be interesting both from a science and an engineering standpoint. But uh, we've been pretty happy doing research on, uh, I don't regret any choices uh, in terms of doing research on how people learn and remember or fail to learn, fail to remember. Uh, that's been constantly interesting to us. And how about yourself, Elizabeth? Any, any <clears throat> other things that you would like to have done? Um, I think for me, um, I have sort of an interest in art and art history. I might have liked to go into that realm. But um, I also very concerned about the environment, so I could see myself being involved in something having to do with conservation or, like Bob was saying, alternative forms of energy, that sort of thing, too. Fantastic. That, that's superb. Well, I wonder, before we dive into the heavy stuff of memory and forgetting and desirable difficulties, I wonder if you could just give our listeners a very brief overview of, of your career, just just giving us a flavour of, of how you've got to, to where you are today, if that's okay. Well, I, for me, I um, wasn't all that successful in my uh, high school career, except for my senior year. Um where I did well. And then I went on to a small college as a chemistry major, uh, ran into financial difficulties, transferred to the University of Minnesota, where I was a physics major until the middle of my senior year, when I found out if you switch to math, that gave more opportunities. Um, and then at one point, the person I was working with in Minnesota told me I had to go to Stanford because it had the best mathematical psychology program, um, which it did indeed, and uh, I just sort of said, okay, not really appreciating what a great program that was going to be, and so I was in math psych there at Stanford, um, and gradually became more of a behavioral researcher, very basic questions started to interest me, relationship between forgetting and learning and things like that, and Gradually did less of the math modeling. My first job was at the University of Michigan, and that's where I met Elizabeth. Uh, I always add, which tickles her, that she was an advanced graduate student <laughs> <laughs> when I got there. Um, but then, uh, after we got married and uh, Elizabeth had gone to a faculty position uh, at Rockville University, we both taught at Michigan a couple of years before the opportunity to move to UCLA came up, and that was a long time ago, 1974. So we have been here for a long time now, and that's kind of a long story. You want to tell your story? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so at Michigan, I studied under um, uh, Professor Art or Arthur Melton. He was a very distinguished um, member of the of psychology at that time, and also probably a founder in some respects because he was very involved in 
um, the development of having psychology, which kind of grew up in a philosophy, out of philosophy, to make it a separate um, department, separate science, apart from philosophy. Um, anyway, I studied under him. That's why I first got introduced to memory and learning. And um, uh, so that's what I actually did my dissertation work on. And then when I married Bob, um, we wanted to get hired in the same university and we felt like we had to offer, you know, two different things. Yes. Bob was already pretty well established uh, as a memory expert, so I was also interested in things like visual information processing. Uh, so I did that for quite a while, and um, that was published in that area. And then at some point, it was quite a ways into... Mm. We decided that, okay, we're kind of secure in our positions now. Maybe we can start collaborating and working together. So I came back to my sort of my first love, which was learning and memory. There were nepotism rules that stopped married couples from having positions in the same department. And, uh, in fact, we were told once that we were... Uh, I think a second couple in the whole University of California system to both have appointments in the same department. But even after that, as Elizabeth referred to, um, there was informal pressure to be very different people. And so... Teach different types of courses. Yeah. The first paper we co-authored was uh, 23 years after we were married. Really? Flipping heck. Even though we'd been very, uh, you know, worked on each other's drafts and so on. But that's changed very dramatically. Now it can almost be a strategy for academic departments to hire hire a couple. uh, So maybe they can afford to live in a place like uh, (laughs) Westwood or Santa Monica or something. Um, But so that's changed a lot. But. Um, over a lot of years since we started working together, that's been uh, in, enjoyable and sort of freed us up in a lot of ways. There's a, what's the name of our the chapter we wrote on um, the the Observer, which is a, a oh. publication of the American uh, well, what used to be the uh, Association is now the Association for Psychological Science. Uh, and uh, they did a series on, what do they call it, dynamic duos? Dynamic duo, (laughs) psychology, and we were the first, and we entitled it um, Freedom, Flexibility, and Never Finish. (laughs) It's a a long story of why we gave it that title, and you probably have more important things to pursue. Anyway, we can send you that if you'd like to see it. That'd be fantastic. That's a, a lovely backstory. That's absolutely perfect. Thank you. Um, well, you, you've, you've teed us up perfectly to, to move into memory. And just to give you a bit of background here, I'm, uh, I've been doing this podcast for about two years now, and I'm, I'm very much 
a novice who's getting a bit obsessed with educational research. And when we had Dylan William um, on the show, he really opened my eyes. And Will Emney, who I know you you know very well, he's he's pointed me in the direction of your research. And I've become a bit of a super fan, I must admit. But there are still gaping holes in my knowledge. So I apologise now if any of the questions I ask seem a bit daft or or naive. But I'm, I want to start off by by asking about memory and. What I, what I want to know first is what, when you speak to people about memory, whether they be fellow academics or just members of the general public, what misconceptions do you find that people have about how memory works? Well, it's dramatic, really, and that's what's fascinated us for across all these years, that you might think just by sort of everyday trial and error, people would get a good idea of how their memories work, but... Um, there are massive uh, misunderstandings. People seem to work, think they work something like a, a recording apparatus of some kind. And uh, I once taught a course that had the structure of all the ways we differ from any kind of recording apparatus. And uh, over about the last 25 years, particularly, there's been a lot of work in a domain called metacognition or metamemory. And that's experiments where people predict their future performance, choose among alternative ways to study, uh, rate how much they've learned, various measures like that. And uh, there's no end to those results where people's predictions are exactly the opposite of uh, uh, the actual results. Uh, they choose less effective uh, ways to learn over more effective. So that's a continuing puzzle, but... but just a fascination to us because it points to the potential for people to be far more effective learners than they are based just on their own intuitions or, or everyday uh, practices. So if you, in terms of surveys, if you ask <clears throat> students, how do they study? What's their favorite way of studying, preferred way of studying? the winner by far is to just read a chapter over and over and over again. And uh, that's probably the least effective way that you can study and learn. And yet uh, people, I mean, eventually you will learn. And in particular, you can probably prepare yourself for a an exam that will occur pretty quickly in the future. Um, but, but it's not an effective way to learn both either in time, the time that it takes or, uh, the duration of that learning. So, um, I mean, duration in terms of being accessible to you in the future. And can I just ask what, without getting too technical, what, why is that? What, why, if I'm reading over something and it feels familiar to me and at the time I'm thinking, yeah, actually I understand this, I understand this. Why is that not an effective way of, of remembering something or learning something? Well, that, that could, that's such an interesting question. It could in some ways be the rest of this interview. So <laughs> yeah. we have to be careful about that. But, but one thing, for example, um, if a student reads some material, a chapter, a second time, there's low level perceptual processes that will increase the, the fluency of the reading. You just will seem more fluent. Yes. And some research suggests that people will then mistake that sheer perceptual fluency for increased understanding. And uh, so also, 
um, when students are preparing for an exam, say, um, their ability to judge when they're going over some passage in a textbook, whether they would be able to recall that content if it's the answer to a later question, is really very poor. So an absolutely crucial thing is to be practicing the retrieval process. And that's one of the things that is a, people misunderstand in a massive way, which is when you play things off of a, a computer memory or recording device, you leave those things sort of the same way they were before. Yes. But human memory is so dramatically different on that point. When you retrieve something from memory, you make it much more recallable future than it would have been otherwise. And in fact, you make it more recallable than if you studied it again. So retrieval is more powerful than anything like rereading. The other thing it does, and this is a whole separate line of research uh, that we label retrieval-induced forgetting, as you retrieve something, other things in competition with it, like wrong answers, become less recallable. So retrieval is practicing the recall process is very unlike playing anything off of a uh, video disc or something like that. It changes and alters the, the memory representation. And it's really fundamental the way humans work because... Um, we don't, we're so massive on the storage side that there's basically efforts to say how much information we have stored comes up with such large numbers that you might as well think it's infinite. But the way we work is that only some of that information, generally the things most relevant to the current situation or most recent, is actually recallable. And so you really don't want everything in your memory to be recallable you know it would be be some kind of computer routine for example if i asked you your home phone number what it would do is come up with a list of all the things that across your life have been your home phone number and then there would be decision which one's current yes but in human memory as we practice something that's current the other things become inaccessible though not gone from memory, which is a crucial thing. And uh, now I've gone on too long. You want to <laughs> Sorry. Could I just ask you both a question based on that? You you mentioned um, about retrieval and how, and correct me if I'm wrong here, when you retrieve something, it, it can replace associated memories, making the, the, the kind of memory that you've retrieved stronger relative to the other memories. Is there a danger then that if you're retrieving the wrong memory, it can displace correct correct information if that makes sense and is the implication there because this is something i've always always wondered is it important that when you taught something you taught something really really well the first time because essentially that's what you're going to be retrieving over and over and over again and and once you once you start retrieving something incorrect does it then become even more difficult to replace that with the correct information i don't know if that makes any sense no it makes good sense uh Take a crack at it. You want me to? But, I mean, one <clears> thing <throat> about memory and why it's so much fun to study and <laughs> it, how complex it is. Uh, but if you have a well-established belief that is incorrect, um, it's very, very hard to um, to make to displace it 
with a new correct idea, particularly if there's any sort of emotional uh, attachment or a social attachment to that uh, miss uh, to the original incorrect thing that you learned. Yes. So there is that process that it's hard to permanently um, remove. In fact, you can't really ever remove incorrect assumptions or errors. What you wanted, but what the best we can do is make the correct answers more accessible. And, but all, but those errors are never, as Bob was saying, when we learn something new, it can replace something old. But it never really gets rid of the old thing. It just becomes the thing that's more accessible to you now. So, um. Yeah, and related to that. In a way, it's a very <clears throat> adaptive part of memory. Yes. Because it means, uh, you know, if you've learned something, now you learn something new. And then your context changes and the old thing is uh, what you need to have accessible to you again. You can make, bring it up to, um, uh, ready accessibility much more quickly than if you had to, it's not like you have to learn it all over again or learn yes. it from scratch, as we say here. Uh, but you, so your relearning is much faster because that memories those memories are not wiped out they're just made less accessible and we're always at risk basically of of errors and things coming back so you know in the domain of sometimes called naive naive physics where people have the wrong ideas about yes. the motions inertias and stuff you can teach students have them pass uh exams do well on them but over the long term, you'll tend to see what I've called some of a regression to the earlier ideas. And this can actually, again, when you think about it real carefully, uh, it's a dynamic that seems strange but <clears throat> often works on our behalf. I'll just give you one example. We spent a summer in Scotland at the University of St. Andrews, and um, so we rented a car and had to learn to from our standpoint, sit on the wrong side of the car, <laughs> yes. the wrong place for the mirror, drive on the <laughs> side. It's about as classic a <clears throat> negative transfer situation you could possibly imagine. So gradually we survived and, and became reasonably good after a few months, although it was still a vigilance task. But now what happens if we stop using those new habits? What would it mean? Well, it might, might have meant we killed ourselves or something, but, but more likely <clears throat> that we're back in the United States. And the way memory works then is those, that earlier learning of all the, uh, the, the, the driving mechanics over here will come back and be dominant again. And that's, that's adaptive. And so there are a lot of examples like that that you can see for both human and animal. Uh, behavior, but um, it's a, it's a real subtly because no artificial man-made devices really work like that, and uh, where you have these competitive dynamics that serve us well most of the time, most of, right? But lead to certain kinds of errors in special circumstances. And it may be <clears throat> we've we've done a little research on this, but not much. But it can also be things that underlie some of the prejudices that we hold on to, 
um, because even if, um, for example, we've done research where you learn certain characteristics about people, and then um, we can, some of which could be negative, and then we can do things that will make you forget, in a sense, those negative things and, and only have the more positive things accessible to you. But they keep influencing your behavior because they're not really gone. And um, it looks like, in fact, these indirect effects of those beliefs can keep influencing your behavior without your sort of conscience conscious knowledge that they're doing so. So um, some people think this may underlie, for example, the fact that even though you think, I'm not prejudiced, I am not going to use um, race or gender or these various things to determine whether I hire this person or not. Um, nonetheless, even though you, at an intellectual level, you think I'm not going to be biased by those things. They can st- because if you had originally learned uh, or had those um, prejudices were taught to you earlier in life, they can keep bothering you even and and, and and affecting your behavior, affecting your judgments, affecting your decisions in this sort of unconscious way. Uh, even though in, on a higher level, you're trying very hard not to have them do that. So that's kind of a negative side of this. On the other side, on the other hand, as Bob was saying, should that should the information that's been suppressed now become relevant again, it's it's there. You don't have to learn it from scratch again. So it kind of it's this nice adaptive feature yes. of memory, but can have both negative and positive consequences. Got it. F- fantastic. And we, we've we mentioned already a lot about about learning. And it's been at the time of recording here, which is towards the end of June, there's it's been all kind of kicking off on Twitter with with all the kind of big names weighing in on, on their definition of learning. And I saw a quote from um, John Hattie, who de- who defines learning as the process of developing sufficient surface knowledge to then move to deeper understanding such that one can appropriately transfer this learning to new tasks and situations. And then I know Kirshner's Weller and Clark, and I know Dylan William likes this definition, they simply say learning is a change in long-term memory. Do, do you two have a preferred definition of, of what learning is? The last one, it, it no doubt reflects a relatively permanent change uh, in our memory structures, in our brains, uh, as opposed to some of the things that can be local changes and um you know, and that's that's relevant to this issue of learning versus performance, where performance can reflect simple local conditions that make something very accessible, but uh, whereas learning uh, can often only be identified um, by something lasting until a later time or being applicable to a new kind of problem. So... Um, Learning is really associated with much more uh, fundamental changes at uh, the neural brain level, um, less dependency on what local cues are, and so on. So uh, it can get it can get very complicated, <laughs> yes. and a thing to define, and uh, 
I'm not sure it's even yeah. a useful activity to try to choose between conflicting yes. definitions. But uh, the the most important thing from a student, a teaching standpoint, is just that um, to really have long-term consequence to change things, you have to do things that, in fact, um, amount to new learning. And often that is simply a matter of uh, linking up things uh, in a certain way that hasn't been done before. And we've sometimes argued that past some pretty early point in your life, you probably don't do any absolutely new learning. Everything gets sort of hooked up or related to what's already in memory. And actually the key to being a successful teacher sometime is that if, if you are teaching kids, say, and you know they know something, if you can make show the relationship between that and this new thing, you can really enhance learning very rapidly. Whereas um, I think based probably on the interview you did with William Emony, you uh, got some exposure to the, this distinction we make between retrieval strength and story strength. But uh, retrieval strength is just kind of uh, how accessible it is right now in the presence of all these cues and how recent it was and so on, whereas storage strength is kind of how linked up this particular skill or, or knowledge is with everything else you have in, in your memories. And those two are kind of identifiably different things that have uh, um, interesting dynamics between those two so uh and that we've spent quite a bit of time on that uh in terms of trying to say what those dynamics are i also like to think of learning this isn't a definition of learning in terms <laughs> of processes or mechanisms or but i like to think of um try to open people's eyes to the fact that learning is what makes life interesting and that there are all, you often hear students saying, well, if I was interested in that, I could learn it. But actually, it's often the other way around. If you learn something about this field, it's going to become more interesting to you. And so it's the learning is the process by which we keep expanding, keep exploring, keep uh, getting involved in new areas and fields and activities. And so it's it's the spice of life, I guess. <laughs> what keeps us uh, keeps life a very intriguing, interesting thing. Yeah, very relevant to that is uh, simply the notion of lifelong learning. So, on the one hand, it's incredible and very daunting the way information and everything is is increasing. But on the other hand. There are more opportunities now to sort of learn on your own than ever before uh, from outside of any formal classrooms. And people's occupations change and their interests and hobbies change. And knowing how to learn, I think in one paper we said that uh, knowing how to learn <clears throat> has always been crucial, but probably never more important than now where there's so much information in so many domains and knowing how to learn across your lifetime 
It doesn't just mean job related. I mean, you avocations, you get interested in bird watching. That's an incredible thing <laughs> of things to learn in the visual spatial domain and the auditory domain and geographic domain. There's a huge amount. And basically, uh, that's kind of become the ultimate survival skill in a way is just knowing how to learn effectively. Fantastic. And I definitely want to dive in when we get into the desirable difficulties for some effective strategies uh, for that learning. But I just I just want to ask you now, because when, when I was reading your work, this, this was probably one of the first things that struck me, this this distinction between learning and performance, because as a teacher, often all we, we see is performance, whether we're doing assessment for learning within the classroom or whether we're seeing the results of a test. And when I read that, firstly, there's a distinction between learning and performance, but then even more surprising that often the relationship between them is inverse, that often high levels of performance are indications of, of low levels of learning. Is Can that really be true? And can you just elaborate a little bit on, on this relationship between learning and performance? Because as I say, for, for a teacher, this is one of the most important things, I think. Yeah, you basically, it's just a little bit different than, than, than what you said. Basically, when something is very accessible to you, because it's just been presented to you, um, other reasons like, all the situational cues that you're in right now help you recall it. That corresponds to something having high retrieval strength in our terms. Yes. And it will yield good performance. But right then, very little learning can happen. That is, when something is very accessible for any one of these reasons, if, for example, you read it again, or if you recall it, it does almost nothing in terms of long-term memory in the brain. And so it's like we need forgetting to happen that would be induced by some delay, by changing the environmental circumstances, by changing the cues in some other way, and that will lead to lowered access to the information or skill in question. But then at that point, you there is much greater potential to achieve learning in what we call the sort of storage drink sense. In the, It's more difficult to produce it, but the potential to get it linked up with more different things and to accomplish real learning uh, is increased. So it's a real challenge for teachers and for students themselves to be really important to be suspicious of your current performance. And a lot of these studies that I referred to earlier about metacognition show that people get frequently very fooled by their ability to recall something fluently right now, where that recall is a product of local conditions of some kind. And, but it leads them to have confidence that at a delay and in some other situation where it's needed, they'll be able to recall it. And so people wildly overestimate their ability to later recall something in a different situation. Sometimes why uh, transfer broadly is sometimes been called the holy grail of education. You know, as a teacher, as a student, do you achieve a learned representation that will let you access that skill or information when it's needed in some altered situation? or at a delay. 
And uh, it's really absolutely, the, the work on learning versus performance goes back to animal studies in the 1930s. <laughs> At that time, uh, basically, it showed that considerable learning could happen when it didn't, performance wasn't changing. These were experiments like in animals solving spatial rays and they seem to be just going around aimlessly. <clears throat> but then when food is introduced, you could see that learning had happened. And there was a whole body of that research across decades. The really crucial thing is starting much more recently over the last few decades. There's this research that shows the converse is true as well, namely that you, in the uh, face of rapid changes of performance in apparent learning, very learning, little learning can actually happen. So uh, that's this learning versus performance difference. And it's really something that uh, if students or your your audience could get clear about, it has so many implications yes. that it's a fundamental takeaway point. Oh, it is. And can I just ask what, what on that on that very point, one of one of a teacher's main tools is is formative assessment or assessment for learning. And, and I use it all the time. And that would be I've done some teaching and I want to get a sense of whether my students have understood what I've said or I'm about to teach something and I want to get a sense of their baseline knowledge. So I may ask a question. It may be a multiple choice question, A, B, C, D, one right answer, three wrong answers. And, be, and I ask everybody in the class the same question. They give me their responses, either voting with fingers or whatever, and then I make a snap judgment based on their answers whether I can proceed with the lesson. And I've done this throughout my, my whole career. But, but when I hear about the distinction between learning and performance, does that mean that I'm only observing performance in that single moment in the lesson? And as such, does that mean the strategy for assessment for learning is, is fundamentally flawed? Or has it? can we still infer something from a class's response to a single question. First of all, I think it, I think it's a, a good thing to do, even though it it gets tricky to do it correctly. And uh, some of our research tends to show that it matters a lot what the question you ask. So, for example, um, we, in contrast, a lot of people are actually kind of uh, fans of multiple choice testing but only multiple choice testing that has what we refer to as competitive alternatives. Yes. So when there's competitive alternatives where the wrong answers are things that would pick up on misconceptions, misperceptions, uh, then they can be quite diagnostic, uh, as would a more free recall kind of answer. Yes. Uh, but a teacher should be... Um, suspicious and uh, probably certain types of transfer questions that you might ask that have to do with um, what are the implications of this that we've gone over for some whole other domain. Those kind of things will start to get at whether something more like learning and, and understanding has been achieved. But uh, overall, um, we need to be kind of suspicious of just simply right answers. We may be guiding people to those answers uh, related to this before I let Elizabeth 
come on with more interesting things. <laughs> um, a lot of this research shows that if you, you as a teacher really want your students to retain the key important half dozen, say, things a year from now and five years from now and carry them on to the situations relevant, they must be revisited. Basically, you will never achieve true kind of long-term learning by going over something once, getting right answers, and dropping it. It yes. just does not fit with the known dynamics of human memory. So if you want long-term attention, you must revisit a topic. And, and this is... This is one of the things, among others, that can be a trap for teachers because they create course syllabi where they try to be sort of well-organized, and that leads them to group and block things by topics, cover it, maybe give a quiz or an exam, and then come back. I mean, if you really want long-term learning, the course syllabus ought to look kind of crazy because <laughs> you should come you must revisit things and so much the better if key concepts come up in a different in different contexts and so i've talked too much you want to add <laughs> <laughs> well i was just thinking about this particular it's uh the strategy is called assessment for learning is that what That's AFM? Correct. yes correct so um i would say that a variation or of that technique would probably work pretty well. I think you could, you before you go on to your next topic, you want to ask a question, and as you said, you see how if if enough students get the correct answer, then you think, okay, they've got that, I'll move on to the next thing. But if you do like a form of what we sometimes call expanding retrieval practice, so, all right, so now they've answered that first question correctly, now you start talking about your next topic, but after a short space of time, you ask them a second question about that first topic and see, can they still get the correct answer? Or how it relates to that. Or topic. how it relates, something that would make it show how it relates to this new topic that you're talking about. So if you just, as you're... As you're going through several different topics, if you just keep coming back at ever-expanding intervals of time and asking them about the first topic and the second topic and so forth, that probably is a very effective way. You're, you're assessing whether they have, they, they can answer that question when it's not just sitting there and sometimes what we call it in their short-term memory. Yes. Now it's been replaced with new things, other things. Can they still get back to that information or that concept or whatever it was you were asking about? Like maybe it was a particular procedure for solving a problem. Can they still retrieve that way of doing it? Now, even though now you've been talking about some other type of problem and how to, solve it in in a delay so i don't know if i'm making this clear but it's like you do the assessment but you do it several times for the same topic and at expanding intervals and then in those intervals you can be introducing new topics yes no that makes that makes absolute absolute perfect sense and i i wonder just on that same 
on that same thing, what one 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 kind of conversation or idea I had with with a lady called uh, Daisy Christodoulou, who's who's quite quite a, an expert on on kind of formative assessment over here in the UK, she made the point, and I'm I'm absolutely fascinated to, to get your take on this. She said that if you teach a topic and you assess somebody straight away after that topic, you may not learn whether that. As a teacher, you may not learn whether they've learned something if they get it correct, because, again, we can't distinguish learning between performance and they may be getting it right because of cues and all that. But you can learn something if they get it wrong, especially if the question's well designed to expose a misconception. So has has formative assessment in the sense of um, asking it straight after you've learned a topic so I can get some immediate information? Would you agree it's valid that I can learn something if students get get something wrong if that makes sense yeah that's uh, that can be very informative particularly if say everybody in your class yes yes wrong answer okay you know you haven't taught that correctly and it kind of making me think of our confidence yeah. we've been recently we've been uh doing research on um, use of what we call a confidence-weighted multiplication testing. Multiple choice. A confidence-weighted multiple choice questions. And um, these are just like, in essence, a kind of like a, just a standard multiple choice test where, you know, you have the A, B, C, D answers. Uh, but it's... Um, should I try to explain it? <laughs> okay. So you have to imagine now like a triangle. Okay. And at the vertex of your, the three vertices of your triangle, there, that's where your A, B, and C would be. Alternatives. Your alternatives. So let's say it is a question about... Um, outer planet. Yeah. What outer planet's existence was first detected through mathematical calculations as opposed to, um, you know, direct observation. Right. Okay. And so now at your at your three vertices, you have Neptune, uh, Uranus, and Mercury. Mercury. Okay. Okay. So you have two outer planets and one inner planet. Yes. And uh, the inner planet should be able, should be a quick rejection. Yes. To some extent. But uh, to decide between Neptune and Uranus, you're going to have to maybe think a little bit. Because yes. they're both outer planets. And you might think, well, mm, can I think of any reason to reject Uranus as the correct yes. Maybe you think it's Neptune, but you're just not quite sure. Uh, so you're thinking back to the passage or the chapter that you just studied, and you remember, I can't think of anything like that about Uranus. All I can remember about it is, is it's this planet that has this weird sort of, uh, it's tilted in a strange way and as it in its orbit around the sun. Uh, but now, what you have done is you have retrieved information about Uranus in the process of rejecting it as the correct answer. Yes. But now, what's really neat about this confidence-weighted multiple-choice format is that not only can the student pick one of the vertices, it, the student can pick points in between along ah. the, connecting the vertices. 
So let's say you think you're more confident in Neptune than Uranus. Yes. You could pick a point closer to Neptune than Uranus, but not at, but you're, but by doing, putting your answer on the line between those two, you're completely rejecting Venus. Is that yes. Mercury. Mercury. Yes. Uh, so what happens is you get some points, you don't get as many points as picking the actual correct answer, but you get some points because you're showing partial knowledge. Yes. Uh, so students seem to really like this format. But another thing to add is the the point system actually punishes confident wrong answers. Yes. So you might be pretty sure it's Neptune, but if you pick it and it's wrong in this scoring system, it's like minus 10 points. Yes, of course. And so basically, this completely rules out guessing. Yes. And so we've been able to show in a series of recent but, studies. But, sorry to interrupt you, but if everybody picks a wrong answer with high confidence, then mm. that's very important information to yes. use instructor, which is a little bit getting at what you were saying. Is that of now course. you know that you are you have somehow given them a misconception, or or they have they're holding some misconception. Yes. That you're you you're the correct. source, basically, uh, in the whole class. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> um, we've been able to show that this um, yields quite a bit better uh, long-term memory, and particularly where a currently wrong answer is now the correct answer to a new question on a later test. It basically shows that whatever form of testing you do, you want to trigger retrieval of not only why something might be correct, but also retrieval of why uh, wrong answers are wrong. Yes. And uh, that becomes absolutely a crucial thing. Yeah, that's what, that's what helps um, your testing not only being an assessment, but it also allows it to be a powerful learning tool because they're not only learning the, the correct answer, they're because they had to retrieve information about Uranus in order to reject it, they're now learning that information better. And so, I, I, I assume that requires you to give them immediate feedback, though. Is that right, that their answer is either right or wrong? Uh, no, we... well. Yes and no. It, that can be important, but other line of research we've done is if this kind of test is administered before students study or before they restudy, uh, you don't have to give feedback on the test itself. That experience of taking the test will potentiate how effectively they study afterwards. And this is something that we've I don't know, it's been a, a burden to bear for us for some time, and <laughs> researchers too, is that the word testing has become a bad word. Yeah, yes. And sometimes it's such a problem that we give talks where we'll change and refer to retrieval practice, the importance yes. of retrieval practice. But this notion that testing is assessment is really has all of these negative consequences. You lose track of what a powerful uh, pedagogical tool testing yes. is. 
And it can be low stakes or no stakes testing, and it actually should be most of the time. And this is kind of interesting relative to educational policies, because in talking with, um, uh, for example, Will Emony, who, who you uh, interviewed, and others, um, there are advantages in the United Kingdom in terms of educational policies that mean that there's more emphasis on sort of What's how people do on the criterion test, not as much of whether they're right, correct right now. And I think that can lead to a little bigger emphasis on the pedagogical virtues of testing. So that's a new development, though, right? Relatively new, but but here here it's more difficult to implement. I mean, there's there's several identifiable. We've already talked about the fact that testing will lead to retrieval that will make the right thing more retrievable in the future yes. and make other things become in competition less recallable. And another big virtue is testing potentiates subsequent studying. So if when you've been tested on something, even before you had a first chance to study it or before you have a second chance, People study much more effectively given prior testing. And that's even if you've not seen anything, you've not been taught anything about the topic. If you take a test on it before you're taught it, it makes you better equipped to learn and retain that information when yeah. you're taught it. That's, that's amazing. New, yeah, it is amazing. It's a, it's a relatively newer result because, you know, it feels like this is crazy. I haven't been taught yeah. nothing but wrong answers. But something happens where even in the process of giving wrong answers, you sort of activate what you do know, apparently, about something that's sort of relevant. Flipping. And, that is massive. That's incredible. Yeah. It's not clear. In fact, well, we, we've done it in the lab, and we can even send you those that paper. But um, we've also done it in a big lecture uh, class. So just before certain lectures, we've given the, the students a test on, say, two or three of the topics that are going to be presented in that lecture. And we, um, uh, and they don't know, you know, they, they probably know almost nothing. Well, they don't know. They haven't heard the lecture yet. So they <laughs> really answer these. And in fact, they, they score, these are multiple choice tests. They scored about chance. Yes. And then we, um, and then, then there are some lectures that we don't get in one of these pretests. Then at the end, the final, um, we ask questions. New, both, well, some of the questions are repeated from the pretest. Yes. But there's also ones that are just related in the sense that they ask a question not about it's not, a, not an identical question, but it's a question about that same topic, right. but a different question about it. And, or it's a question about a topic that wasn't, didn't even appear on the test. It was in that lecture, but it what didn't appear on the test. And people are better now at answering all of those questions than they are answering questions about matters that were that were uh, discussed in the lectures that were not preceded by pretest. 
That is in that is incredible. Uh, absolutely incredible. And I wonder if because because this goes on to something I was going to ask you about a little later, but now now's a perfect time. Um, with these, we're kind of touching upon desirable difficulties here, but certainly, um, I would imagine that that's it's. It, it possibly doesn't feel good to be in the situation where you're being tested on something that you've not been taught. And I know certainly some of my students in that position will be, oh, flipping heck, I've only got two out of 10 on this. I'm, I'm not feeling good. My, my motivation's dropped. Do, is, is there a possible trade-off there in all of this making learning difficult more that students lose motivation, lose interest, put in less effort, and therefore any benefits from the more difficult, from, from the desirable difficulties are actually offset by the decrease in motivation and effort from students. Is that anything you've experienced? It, it's a question that comes up a lot and um, to some degree an implication is that um, you need to do a certain kind of socialization with your students if you want to optimize learning. Yes. One is um, to say that raising your hand and giving a wrong answer to something is a contribution. Yes. They, they need to think, and, and particularly with this pretesting, it's easy enough to explain. We don't expect you to get these right. We want you to yes. think about them. Research has shown that if you think about them, uh, the new learning will happen more effectively when we go over them. So there's. Well, there's actually, we didn't do we didn't do that. And, uh, that's what I that's what we tell instructors to do. In yes. the original study, we didn't do yeah. that. We just gave them the pretest and said, "We're just trying to find out how much you already know about the topics that right. we're going to be learning today." But he's. But we don't expect you to know anything, yes. shall we? Yeah. And so, you know, you probably won't get the right answer to but any of these things. That was important to do experimentally, but yeah. from a practical standpoint, yes. being a teacher right. you wanna... with with kids who want to get things right and so on, there is a kind of socialization that you mm. achieve that says errors are okay. The other side of that is this relates to what Elizabeth said earlier about expanding retrieval practice. There are also ways that you stage questions, you sequence them in a way so the early ones get correct and are easy, and gradually you kind of wean people from that to harder questions. That requires quite a bit of uh, instructor knowing how to do that. But really, uh, one key is just kind of an attitude change that you need to accomplish in the students. And, uh, you know, you would know more, and people like Will Emney would know a lot more of the, the classroom dynamics with kids than we do. But, for example, there's a whole body of research uh, done mostly in schools in Singapore. Uh, the first author in a lot of that work is Kapoor, K-A-P-U-R, and it's a domain of what he refers to as productive failure. And these are things where you get the kids together in a team to try to solve some problem, which you know in advance, there's very unlikely that they'll get exactly the right, come up with the solution. Yes. And after they have quite a bit of time of working together, trying to figure it out, then you give a lecture on the material. And they show better long-term benefits, where in a case where you give, there's about two-thirds of the time taken up with kids trying to fumble around and figure this out, 
and only a third of the lecture versus where the whole time is a standard teaching and lecturing. And long-term memory can be better where they've had this uh, period of uh, fumbling around, trying to figure it out. Uh, he does almost all of it in a cooperative learning thing with, with the kids trying yes. to figure this out together. But something happens in terms of activating everything they do know, even though they don't come up with the right answer to that, that makes the then the, the lecture very effective and enhances long-term learning. But right now we're in a domain where you're talking about something that's like a current research topic. Yes. This is not settled, settled <laughs> matter here. This, this, all sorts of exciting possibilities and complexities, and it's kind of right now trying to sort this out. And not much thought has been given to the practical side of um, how should a teacher right. take advantage of pretests. Yes. And, and the kinds of uh, courses that we're talking about are ones where you can write a pretty good question that a student could think about, reason about, and, you know, consider all the alternatives and say, well, I'm kind of thinking this could be the correct answer. Now, I'm trying to think how you would do that in a math, math class. Yeah, I think yes. that would be a real challenge, but maybe an interesting one, where um, you could maybe, <clears throat> rather than you know just have the correct answers, A, B, C, and D, you might have things like the answer to this would probably be larger than, yes. or something like that, so that they know they're just sort of estimating um, but it, it it's like, and, and as Bob was saying, this is really brand new research, and we don't know what makes then your your listening to the lecture more effective, or your reading of the material that you're then going to read about more productive. But maybe some of it just is a peaking peaking something, some of the knowledge you already have. So it, it, it enables you to now hook up with some of that. Some of it may be an attention, curiosity sort of thing you've, yeah. you have sparked in your students. We got asked recently, oh gosh, I should remember his name. It is a teacher in England, and you made me know him, about a new form of a calculator that that's, was designed and invented by someone who's at the University of California, San Diego, but our research group has been discussing it. This is a calculator where rather than just punching in the numbers to come up with the answer, you first put in an estimate about what you think it is. <laughs> so, I mean, if it's they're asking you, uh, you know, what's 11 times 12, and, you know, you student doesn't really know, but they know it's more than 100 because they know 10 by 10, they put something... And what this appears to do, but I think a lot of research has to be done, it it makes students think when they think about, well, it should be about what. They exercise what knowledge they do have. And then the calculator is set up that depending on how close you are, you get one kind of feedback or another. And, you know, you, you don't have to be exactly right. It will tell, yes, that's in the... So, again, 
we just heard about this, and uh, a graduate student here is kind of exploring the implications of this, but it, it looks like it would make you uh, think through exercise knowledge you already have. And, uh, you know, what, what we've seen as teachers over the years is uh, students' reliance on something like a calculator. We, we will we'll go over data with students where we immediately see that the average they have for a column number is higher or lower than any number in the column. <laughs> <laughs> they just made some mistake and they, they just did Excel wrong or something like that and don't see that. And so, um, you know, the, the, this has many implications as we keep emphasizing a really new topic. And um, That's incredible. That is absolutely incredible, that. The whole idea, the whole concept of desirable difficulties is just blow my mind because I always assumed as a teacher, my job was to make learning as, as easy as possible for students. And one of the things I'm particularly interested in is, is cognitive load theory. And I've, I've done as much reading as I can on that. And I just wonder, should learning be desirably difficult in the initial skill acquisition phase? Or is it just when students have reached a certain amount of proficiency? Is that when you start introducing the desirable difficulties? So therefore, is there an argument for, say, batching questions as opposed to spacing and interleaving in that initial skill acquisition phase? Or should learning be desirably difficult from the outset? One thing we've emphasized in one little paper we wrote is the word desirable is important, and yes. there's a lot that we intended by that. Uh, these things are desirable, these difficulties, because they uh, introduced correctly, they actually activate the very processes that create learning long-term retention. So they, they can uh, create or induce Retrieval, they can induce connections with other material and so on. But there is a role for what students already know. So, uh, a, a question that's desirable difficulty for a given student, because that student has relevant precursor knowledge, is not going to be desirable for another student who doesn't have any of the background necessary to engage those activities. So relevant to your specific question, yes, there's a number of cases where I'd want to um, kind of build up or uh, tune the question somewhat with respect to what students already know. You, you basically, the, the set of activities that you want to induce are pretty well known in terms of retrieval, making connections, and so on. But how to achieve that by introducing desirable difficulties is going to depend on what uh, precursor knowledge a student has. And, yeah. um, so one way to think of it is, a, I mean, desirable difficulties challenge the student. <clears throat> but if it's such a huge challenge that there's no way they can actually deal with that challenge in a successful manner, uh, it's not going to be a desirable difficulty. So, so you have to sort of tune the degree of the degree of difficulty to 
what your student already knows. And uh, so it's got to be just a, yeah. kind of like sometimes we think of it about, it's like with game playing, you know, there are all these different levels. And the student, uh, after they've achieved the, the first level, then that kind of gets boring if that's, yeah. you know, it never gets any harder, if the game never gets any harder. So then they go to a next level, and for a while they're not very good at that, but eventually mm -hmm. their skills get better and they achieve that. So that's what kind of makes games, I think, so intriguing to students, is it's those levels of difficulty keep increasing. Yes. And yet they're able, they're not so difficult that you can't, yeah. with persistence, master them. That That's such a good example because it, it ought to be a lesson to teachers in the following sense. Uh, in those video games and computer games, which work you through levels, you know, that that puts a lie to any idea that, that, that students just don't want difficulties. In fact, as Elizabeth said, they wouldn't keep, once they passed one level, they're not going to go back and play the game at that level again. It's not interesting. It's not challenging. It doesn't have difficulties. And so I think there's some somewhat analogous to more real-world education that once I get some requisite skills, uh, I don't want to just keep operating at that level. I want to get something that, again, but so finding the right level of challenges, and I'm sure these computer game manufacturers seem very skilled at once you pass what level, what the next one ought to be. I, th I think you're right. I think the difficulty is from teaching, and this goes back to what we were saying about learning versus performance, because the only tool I've got at my disposal as a teacher in the moment, in the heat of a lesson, is an assessment for learning strategy. So is is a, a well-designed multiple choice question, say, or or, or a, a quick no-stakes test. Yeah. But of course, in the heat of the moment, in that lesson, I'm only observing performance. So yes. it's then very hard for me to, to make a valid judgment as to whether I need to increase the difficulty because I can't judge whether they've actually learned something. Do you know what I mean? This, this is, I think this is the real difficulty for yeah. teachers with this distinction between yeah. learning and performance. And one thing we've, we've found, uh, I don't know how many of our colleagues have mentioned, when they find out about the benefits of testing, trying to introduce it, these are college courses, but trying to introduce it into their classes. And one thing is at the, they'll ask, maybe three relatively straightforward questions right at the start of a lecture about the last lecture. Yeah. Or some of these, some of our colleagues have asked right at the end of the lecture, say, okay, what's the answer to this? And again, these are not, they may, they may count zero or maybe they count 10% of your grade, something like that. Um, but an interesting thing we've heard over and over again, and I think Elizabeth may have seen some in, in her own classes is uh, when you say there's going to be this testing in every class session of this simple thing, you almost hear a collective groan of this. <laughs> but then on the final evaluations, the comments are really tend to shift to be positive, namely that those, those questions help me know what to study. Those questions gave me feedback whether I whatever. I like that they didn't uh, determine my grade. I get, you know, they, from the standpoint of the end of the course, they end up with a quite different impression of the role of those simple in-class questions. 
Now, I don't, you know, I, I think at the lower levels, you don't tend to have, uh, you know, we don't tend to have elementary school kids rate their classes. <laughs> so, sure. Probably a good thing. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but there is, a, as I mentioned before, there's a little kind of um, socialization that's necessary yes. at some level if you want. If you want your students to be maximally effective learners, they're going to come in with some attitudes. Yes. That, and we haven't even touched on other crucial things like all of the negative things that comes from the styles of learning approach. Yes. Which we don't want to get us going on. <laughs> oh, no, me neither. <laughs> but students come in with attitudes that, you know, my ethnic group, my family, whatever, is not good at this thing, as good at that. Yes. And, and then they're liable to do something like one bad test on math. They label math as not their thing, so to speak. And then they make that a self-fulfilling prophecy. They, they yep. All the decisions they make after that make that be true. And so, again, on the socialization side, you would just love to get in there and say, just to, do you realize how amazing all of you are as learners? Do you realize... What unbelievable potential you have to learn all sorts of things. And there's no, it's not like some things you can learn and others you can't. And, uh, but you know, students pick up uh, from the media, from other things that, uh, if you can find your own thing where you just have the right brain, uh, there'll be no effort involved in learning. Yeah. It'll just happen. And that's what you should do with your life is find out where you've got the skill and, uh, and then it'll all, then it won't take any effort. Yeah. And so, uh, a lot of those attitudes get conveyed and I think they, they really create a challenge for, well, this for whole your idea, teaching. Right. This whole idea <clears throat> that learning, uh, should be fun and easy and you're, and if you're doing it right, it will be. Yes. Actually, um, if you're doing it right, it should seem a little difficult. Yes. And and if we could just somehow get rid of this misguided idea that that learning should be that <clears throat> learning if you're if you're really learning, it's going to be fun. Actually, if you're really learning, it's going to seem, you may even seem a little confused or yeah. it's going to be a little difficult. It's going to be challenging. And, and then it's we, fun. Yeah, but <laughs> yes. it becomes fun when you conquer those challenges. But uh, I think if we could um, convince, somehow convince students to inter to mistrust this sense of fluency, sense of ease, yes. and... Uh, and think of this sense of, a little bit, this sense of difficulty. Again, it has to be at the right level. Um, as meaning that, okay, now I'm really learning. Now I'm using my time wisely. Mm-hmm. But, um, it's a very, it's a tremendous challenge that I think, te- think teachers have because, you know, our goal is to have our students learn in the, in the very, in the in the sense of learning as something that is long term and is flexible and transferable, but the only way we have of judging that is, as you say often, is their momentary performance. Yes, which is you know a poor predictor of long term learning, 
And then we can't even trust what our students say to us because they <laughs> they too will prefer the the poor conditions of learning rather than yes. But what's funny is in some domains of kids' lives where they're where they're avid about a sport like soccer or automobiles or music genres or something, in that domain they will tend to really embrace and almost dismiss things that are too easy. They really want yes. they really want to know. At, at a more complicated, complete level, and that's what they enjoy, not not something just simple. So, you know, so again, there are domains where students have just the right sort of attitudes, but they don't tend to be in maths learning <laughs> or, or in the classroom. But uh, I think uh, one of the real unique skills of gifted teachers is to make learning just seem important and seem yes. within your reach and uh to that will require some uh effort and difficult yes. it's not, and and yeah. just because it just if it just because it doesn't seem easy to you does not mean as bob was saying yeah. well this is something that you'll never learn or this is something yes. that uh you're just not smart enough to learn it just means um you know, we we need to. This is a challenge, but this is this is how we actually really learn is to challenge ourselves and to experience that sense of difficulty. And there's a trade-off between time and effort, and that's an important point to often make. I, I've sometimes told undergraduates, after all these years of research that we've done and stuff, you know, we can tell you how to study more effectively, how to reduce the time you're studying. And get better grades. But none of those things will make it easier. Yes. So, so that's a trade off. You can make it easy by just sitting in the library and leafing through the pages <laughs> of the book again. But, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, sometimes students want to measure how much they've studied by the time they spent. I worked this many hours preparing for my midterm or whatever. That's a really poor measure because yes. much of that time they might have been sitting in the library or somewhere else, you know, leafing through a textbook, but maybe maybe all their higher-level cognitive processes were on. I wonder if I've got time to go get pizza tonight, yes. guys. You know, well, that, that time should almost not count at all. It, that's not time spent studying in any realistic sense. Spacing has been the most popular requested uh, question on, on Twitter for you. So I would be I would be disowned by my followers if I didn't ask you this. <laughs> and that is, um, I, I mean, I, I hope there's no, I hope there's some kind of answer to this. I fear it may be an impossible question, but. Is there some kind of optimal spacing schedule? So say, for example, um, I've got my students, I've got a fractions test in six months time and I've just taught them fractions today. How often and when should I revisit that material? Uh, you're, you're phrasing the question in a, a pretty good way because it's a question that comes up. But what research shows is there's what we call an interaction between what the final retention interval is in the spacing interval. So right. if you tell me how long you want the information to remain accessible from the last time you studied until a test, that is what the retention interval is going to be. 
then we can say something about what the spacing should be. And uh, basically, the space optimal spacing gets longer as the retention will get longer. So um, you want to, if the last time you're going to go over this material is some months before the critical test, then across the year or whatever of education, you need to introduce substantial spacing between those, you know, on the order of weeks and months. <clears throat> Whereas, I mean, in the limit, in fact, a reason why cramming can work, where students stay up all night in college environments and walk to their exam, is that if the retention interval is zero, you can get away with mass studying. Like there's a slight advantage of mass studying over space if there's a re zero retention interval. But the problem is, of course, when you cram for that exam, you may do all right on that, but to the degree that material need, is needed later or is important for a, a follow-up course, it won't be accessible anymore. So exactly, to be real precise, gets difficult, but that general rule that the longer it'll be, that you want this information to remain accessible, the longer the spacing should be. Just on, on that, Bob, what, what's worse? Too short a spacing interval so that students haven't had time to forget it, so it's, it's retrieval strength but not storage strength, or too long so students have completely forgotten it? If, if you were to, because obviously it's very difficult to, to get the optimum, so what should teachers err on the side of? Too short a spacing interval or, or too long a spacing interval from the initial teacher? Right, so it'll depend on whether there's, whether there's feedback. Right. So, so if there's feedback, then making the error on too long is better than the too short error. If there's no feedback so that students will only kind of profit from getting things right, then I think the too short is better than the too long. And so. that's, yeah, and that's a kind of situation where if you can do it, this sort of expanding retrieval practice really is a very nice thing to do. So mm -hmm. if, if you're not going to give them feedback, you're just going to test them, then you want to test the first test where they still have a pretty good chance yeah. of remembering everything. Yes. And then, but then the next test can be a little bit longer because that, that retrieval practice will have increased the storage strength of those items. So now they'll all last a little bit longer. And so now you can make the next mm -hmm. test occur after a longer delay, and they'll still be able to get most everything right. Uh, and so, and then eventually yeah. you can, you know, the, 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 uh, interval between the last practice test and the one that really Each, each successive correct retrieval lets you Retrieve at a longer delay. Right. I see. So it's a, it's a way of it's a way of introducing these long delays. With this is especially relevant when in situations where there's not going to tend to be feedback. Yeah, you're just going to give. So yeah. it's kind of like uh, one another way to think of it is you want to always be testing them at the long yeah. at, at the longest duration where they still have a chance of retrieving. 
Yes. Okay. So it's like, just on the point where they're about to. Okay. If you wait right? any longer, they wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. But, oh, it's tricky to find that point. Yes. Though, right? yes. Yeah. yeah. So you have to err a little bit on the side of, uh, of being shorter than maybe that yes. absolute maximum. Yeah. But it is a good system, and it's also something that it, once a student understands that, they can introduce that in their own study. In their own study. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Just okay. They can make a kind of schedule. In fact, this comes up in skills. We haven't talked about that, but there's a lot of research requires to skills, and we've had musicians and others uh, tell us they introduce this into things like uh, practicing a piano. So they'll make up a schedule so a given piece keeps coming up and gets practiced at a longer and longer delay. And you build your repertoire that way. Because as the, those delays get longer, you can introduce practicing more, 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 new, more things. new things. Of course, of course. But uh, the one, one last little thing relevant to this, we just have a, a paper coming out where... Um, a lot of people want to say, well, wouldn't it be better, you know, in this interleaving versus massing, they say, wouldn't it be better to sort of mass at the beginning or block the beginning and then start introducing the interleaving, uh, which we refer to as a hybrid schedule. And so we've now actually investigated that. And, you know, beforehand, I think we were all thinking, yeah, maybe that would be the, the sure. kind of you block a little bit at the beginning and then get long and then do more and more interleaving might be optimal. But um, it, in terms of just what they learn, the hybrid, a little bit of blocking and then interleaving can yep. be just as good as pure interleaving, but it's never better. Ooh, flipping heck. What she means by just as good is there's not significant yeah, differences, difference. but we never find it actually produces better than pure interleaving. It's it's better than pure blocking by a lot. It and does, maybe, yeah. yeah. It does have the advantage that students like it better. Yes. Well, uh, that that is incredible. And in fact, it leads me on to my final question. And this is perfect, this, because just in preparation for this interview, I was watching one of your previous interviews, Bob, um, where you talked about in, interleaving and you gave a tennis analogy um, about how if you are learning to learning to play tennis, you'd think the most effective thing to do is to focus on maybe your volley first and really hammer that and get that perfect and then focus on your serve and so on and, and break it down like that and now um i that's what i would refer to as, as as deliberate practice and it's a very um it's seen as a very effective teaching tool and um, certainly for mathematics where say you take a complex process like solving a pair of simultaneous equations instead of teaching the whole skill you break it down into five or six individual skills you really focus on each of those skills practice 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 on st- until the students have achieved mastery then you move on to the next skill and so on and then put it back together at the end. But hearing what you've described there, um, Elizabeth, and and thinking back to your tennis analogy, Bob, does that mean that deliberate practice isn't a good idea for skill acquisition and we should be interleaving right from the start? Well, it's a very good question. Now, the example you gave is one where certain things build on other things. And mm-hmm. then I think that changes the consideration some. But as in the tennis example and believe me 
if you go sign up for somewhere, the chances are at least 90% that they will work on your forehand, maybe having a machine, and then they'll work on your backhand and work on your serve block practice. And now there's a whole body of research in all manner of different skills showing the same number of practice activities mixed, intermixed, will appear to be creating slower learning but then produce better performance long-term. This has been done with badminton. It's been done with hitting baseballs. It's been done with all sorts of things. And there's quite a long history in motor skills. What's exciting is much more recent. We and others have found similar things happen with sort of verbal conceptual skills, learning categories and concepts. And uh, what another thing's very exciting about the potential of interleaving is in addition to all the other issues that might come up as you think about it, it is a way to introduce spacing without changing total time on task. So we've known about spacing for many decades, but often if you talk to teachers, they say, but I can't do that. I, I can't wait. You know, I have these students only these times and so on. But when you interleave, you introduce spacing yes. and without changing the total time on task. And so, you know, again, we're now into something that's a current issue where we're, uh, the, the research world doesn't settle but, on it. But this, the particular example that, um, that you brought up, solving simultaneous equations, that those steps have to be done in a yeah. certain order. Mm-hmm. So, that makes it a more complicated issue. Then, I mean, you can break. You a tennis game has all these different kind of movements in it: the yes. serve, the mm-hmm. backhand, the forehand, the lob, all those kind of things. And then they get all mixed up together in a game. Um, but I don't. It makes it more difficult for me to think about yeah. how you would do it with simultaneous equations because they're wouldn't make sense to do step three before step one <laughs> yes, yeah. and so forth. Um, so how it should be implemented really is a question, but yeah. but it does look promising. Uh, the University of South Florida, Florida, Doug Rohr and his students have found with algebra instruction yeah. positive benefits of interleaving in real-world classrooms. But and that's so, kind of like whole, whole <laughs> types of problems. You don't want to do um, maybe maybe the level of the interleaving should, that should go on is maybe you have um, simultaneous solving simultaneous equations when there are two unknowns and then usually then you maybe move up to three unknowns. You could rather than doing twenty different blocked problems where it's two unknowns and then introduce three unknowns. You could maybe interleave two versus three versus four, you know, that way, interleave it at that level. Lots of research to be done. I mean, a while back I was talking, giving a talk at a a small college, and I met with the biology instructors, and they asked me this interesting question, namely, they said, we have a, a vertebrate course in biology, we have another invertebrate course. Are you telling us that we should teach that all in one course. 
Well, I just didn't have a good answer, but I think one, one thing that's interesting about that question is, my guess is the answer is yes, that you should interleave, but then how you would interleave would be the big issue. What what are the things, it wouldn't just be interleave things randomly in that right. case. Yes. You need to but. develop, but I think it would probably lead to a richer knowledge network mm-hmm. for sort of the, the whole animal kingdom uh, if you interleave the right way, but that's just a speculation. Yeah, and I think, I mean, there are ways to do it in maths. I mean, you, you can teach students fractions um, within a two-week period, and then when you move on to probability, you can make sure fractions are brought into that. When you move on to algebra, fractions come into that. So I think a lot of it comes to, into curriculum design. As long as the curriculum is designed in a manner that, that lends itself well to interleaving, I think yes. you can do it relatively, yes. relatively nicely. And as you say, without taking up any more time, because instead of spending four weeks on fractions, Fractions. Let's spend two weeks, but distribute those two weeks that we've saved across the rest of the yes, year in a little yes. bursts. So it does. I think it does work for that. So that, and that's yeah. and that's the kind of case where people like you and Will Lemony and others have. They, they you have a basis for insights that we don't sort of really have. That is in that particular domain, just how you would interleave and sequence right. uh, can really be made much more effective if you as a teacher mm-hmm. have the kind of knowledge of students' progress and stuff mm-hmm. that, that you have, whereas uh, we haven't taught at that level, we don't really have that knowledge. Yeah. But I think that that could make, uh, and it, you know, you were probably, when you were being taught how to teach, you were probably told, now you want to, ver- you want to block this concept and lots and lots of problems on it and then this concept. So just doing some, and you have the higher level knowledge knowing that there are these relationships Mm. between these concepts. And so if you interleave them in that kind of way, just like you were saying, when you're teaching probability, there's a way of, uh, of setting up these probability problems that reintroduce the the use of fractions. And so, anyway, I think it would be a challenge, but very, very interesting one to explore the most effective way of doing that. But I like what you said. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, on that note, we might, we might bring things to an end there. I'll end on a high there. But I wonder, before I go, just just a kind of a reflection. I wonder if, because you've been, you've been researching and working in the fields of, of memory for, for, for decades, and I wonder, is, is there any particular finding or piece of research that has just really kind of blown your mind, really struck you as particularly surprising or particularly interesting. It could be something that you've you've researched yourself or something that you've read in other people's work. Is there anything that really stands out as, as being quite surprising to you? Well, one thing is relevant to what we've just been talking about um, in interleaving. We did an initial experiment in which uh, a postdoctoral fellow and I did it where people were learning the styles of different painters from examples of their paintings, and we had them learn the styles of 12 different painters. And then the final test was to see new paintings and say which of those artists you studied painted it. This is sometimes called inductive learning, because now this is a new painting, 
And did you learn enough about the styles? <clears throat> and there was all sorts of reasons to expect in advance that when you're talking about inductive learning, that you should block the examples. Because if I'm going to show you six paintings by a given artist, as in our experiment, if I block them, now I can see what the style is. Yes, see the connection Not and so on. Yeah. Same thing. I can I so we set out for that experiment to show there's one circumstance where blocking's better than in leaving. You know, that you should see all the paintings by one artist together rather than interleave the paintings by the different artists. Yes. And uh we did that experiment. And now it's been done many, many times. And we found an interleaving benefit. But we then happened to just throw in at the end a question, what helped you learn better? To, you know, to, the blocking, seeing the examples together, interleaving. And 80 to 90% of students said the blocking was better. These same students, when we looked at their performance, about 80% of them, had done better with the interleaving. So that, that incredible. So that was so. So this has been one of the uh, you know as far as answering your specific question, <laughs> this thing where not only did we predict wrong to start with, yes, but then the results came out this way, and then it showed that that uh, the students had just been through this test and did better where they'd had interleaving now still think blocking's better. That reflects um, several things, including experience they had before coming to our laboratory where most of what they got taught was taught in a blocked way. You know, they might assume teachers know what they're doing. Um, <laughs> and then we also able to show that you get this false sense of fluency during the study process. You, you see these six paintings in a row. Ah, I'm getting this guy. Yes. See six paintings by six different artists interleaved, and there's a sense of confusion, confusion and demand. So, I don't know if Elizabeth has a different example, but that can, can I just can I just sound that right? Because that again, not for the first time this interview, you've you've both blown my mind here. Because as as a teacher, one of the as a maths teacher in particular, one thing that particularly causes novice learners trouble is seeing the deep structure of, of maths problems so they tend to get hooked on the surface structure or the context right so you can you can present say it's a question on um lowest common multiple um, that could be set in a whole host of different contexts it could be a baking context it could be athletes running around a track it could be taxis arriving at different times and logic says to me the best way to get students to spot the deep structure is to present Present them with three or four questions that have all got different surface structures, present them together and then say, right, how can we identify what this question's really about? What have these two questions got in common? What's this third question got in common? How can we spot the deep structure? And that to me seems very similar to, to the painting example yeah. that you've done, because it's all about spotting connections, which would hope then students would spot the connections, which would then mean independently they will be able to identify those questions when presented in isolation. But it suggests to me that that isn't the way, but it goes I, against I, every everything that you would think, right? I think you're in. You're, <laughs> we would share your intuition if we didn't know about these results. And <laughs> yeah. For example, one thing's happened. There's been a great deal of interest in this in medical schools, 
because everywhere they block, you know, you're teaching yes. people to read x-rays. Here's And here's one example of an x-ray that shows a certain malignancy. Here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. They, they're all different, but they all have the... It seems like that's absolutely what you'd want to do. Not here's one example that shows this. Here's another. Of course, but then yeah. the research... I'll tell you what, what appears to be a factor here and misled our ideas as well as uh, learners' ideas, I think, is that what interleaving does is enhance discrimination between the different things. So right. interleaving does is enhance your understand the differences between the different artists or the differences between skin lesions of two types or what. Yes. And that, in a lot of situations, can be more important than seeing the commonalities. But it's... Oof. But it's Flipping natural out. for us as teachers, or the example you just gave, to see. I want them to see what's in common. Yes, absolutely. But we forget that they also have the challenge of discriminating this whole class from something else. But it does look. I mean, what you're talking about is you would you would have these commonalities, but the surface details would be very different. Yes. So that is a type of interleaving right there, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you say? Yeah, it gets, it's almost a hybrid. Yeah, it's kind of almost like a hybrid. But we've, uh, you know, the things we did with Farad were we had the um, three different types of statistical problems. And what you were trying to learn is for this kind of a problem, what is the appropriate statistical um, solution or right. way to analyze the data? And... Um, Either and then we varied either the that's what we kind of did what you were talking about. We did the surface, we varied the surface details about, but it was say they were all Wilcoxon signed rank test. Okay, <laughs> I know that. Yeah, nice. <laughs> but and then we had it all um, embedded in a certain context, or we varied the context uh, and we but you and. And the varying seemed to make people better at later being able to, uh, you know, recognize, okay, this, this problem, a whole new context is appropriate for that kind of a test versus another kind of a test. And it sound, I don't know, it seems like they pick up the commonalities as well yeah, as the differences. But I mean, it's in so, it's so rich right now, you know, in fact, at just the level that you have experience with, um, there are great experiments to be done. Yes. You know, th those are really nice materials. And one of the reactions in particular to that painting experiment that I mentioned, which led to so many other studies, is one reaction people had, well, elderly people may need the support of blocking. And they, they, they <laughs> repeated with elderly participants, and they show, still showed a benefit of interleaving. And then uh, developmental psychology colleagues of ours said that children need the support of blocking and they were learning categories of objects, uh, sort of new objects like this thing's a wug and that thing's a blix and so on. And again, found benefits of interleaving and spacing, even though people were quite sure they wouldn't be there. I mean, you, you can construct situations where there are benefits of blocking. But you, it, it really appears now you have to contrive those situations where 
the crucial thing is to see commonalities and doesn't matter so much to differences. And, but in any case, there's a lot to be done. Flipping out. That is absolutely incredible. That's incredible. Well, uh, before I say, say goodbye and thank you, is there anywhere you'd like to direct our listeners to? Uh, anywhere in particular, any website or blog or anything you think they should check out? And I can put links to it in the show notes. There's some good, um, there are good books right now. Um, one called Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. <clears throat> um, another, a New York Times reporter who we interacted with a little bit, has done one entitled uh, How We Learn. Uh, uh, um, Benedict Carey. Uh, there's, there's any number of websites. One that we're very involved in is called lastinglearning.com. And the goal of this is to make this website a sort of clearinghouse for good research in different domains. And um, I think your listeners would enjoy going to that site, uh, lastinglearning.com. There's interviews with researchers. Uh, there's a great variety of things, and it's done pretty professionally. So there's uh, several things I've mentioned, but quite a bit is happening. That is absolutely perfect. That And like you say, it's, it's not as if there's not going to be new things discovered in the next one year, five years, ten years. This, this The whole field of memory, forgetting and learning is just is dynamic and, and mind-blowing and, and so, so important for teachers to, to understand. So I just, I just want to, yeah, firstly, just thank you for giving up your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to both of you. And secondly, and I... I don't just say this to all my guests, just th thank you for just being inspirational. Um, genuinely, it's it's yourselves, Dylan William and Dan Willingham, who've, who've transformed the way I teach, transformed the way I um, evaluate methods that I used to just take for granted um, for the last 11 years that I've been teaching. So just thank you for all the work you've done and, and thank you for being so generous with your time this evening. Well, you know, it goes both ways. It's, it's really crucial for us that people like you uh, others like Will Emini in the classroom, raising questions, trying things, and so on, because, uh, you know, there, there are constraints in the laboratory studies we do. Right. And to, to actually uh, try to implement these things in real classrooms becomes absolutely crucial. And very exciting for us. And exciting for us. So there you have it. There was my interview with Professors Robert and Elizabeth Bjork. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. And I tell you what, you're about to get a bit of a flavour of how much I got out of it because there's a danger this takeaway session could last longer than the actual interview itself. Because I tell you what, thoughts have been absolutely flipping, whizzing round in my head ever since I spoke to Robert and Elizabeth. And I just want to speak about four things. Assessment for learning, optimal spacing strategy, interleaving and motivation. So let's start with assessment for learning. Now it's no surprise that I'm absolutely flipping obsessed with assessment for learning, with diagnostic questions, um, I'm a bit of a super fan of Dylan William and when I had Daisy Christodoulou um, on the podcast we really hammered deep into this. And it all the, the problem with AFL, well, the perceived problem, all relates back to, to Robert and Elizabeth's work, the distinction between learning and performance. And this is an argument articulated particularly well by David Didow, who argues that if, as teachers, we can only observe performance and not learning, 
then are all the tools of AFL, such as exit tickets, diagnostic questions, and so on, are they fundamentally flawed? Well, the problem is, as I discussed with, with Robert and Elizabeth, tools of AFL are pretty much all we've got as teachers in the heat of the lesson. I mean, what else can we actually do? If, if we teach a concept and we want to get a sense of whether students have understood what we've said, then it's just natural intuition and logic to ask them a question. But of course, and here's the problem, if we're asking that immediately after we've taught it, how do we know if they've retained it? How do we know, fair enough, the retrieval strength of that memory is pretty strong because it's, you know, it's, it's very immediate to them, it's very accessible to them. But what about the storage strength? Well, I think I'm finally at a point where I'm happy with, with this now. So the first thing I'm gonna say is, that assessing baseline knowledge via the use of diagnostic questions or whatever you want, but obviously I'm a bit biased. So assessing baseline knowledge before you teach a new concept, and by baseline knowledge, I mean any knowledge which if the students lack it, it's gonna impede their ability to understand the new concept that you're teaching them. Then assessing that before the lesson, before you start teaching, I think is definitely valid. Because, I mean, let, let's take a little example. Say you're teaching um, students histograms. If students cannot plot a scale, a decimal scale on the y-axis, it's going to impede their ability to be able to um, understand and draw histograms. So assess that ability to plot and draw decimal scales at the start of the lesson. You benefit from spacing effects because it's probably been ages since you've, um, you've, you've taught plotting decimal lines and so on. Um, but also, crucially, um, you are assessing something that if kids aren't fluent in it, it's going to cause you trouble later on. So I think that's absolutely valid. Assessing baseline knowledge, I'm more than happy with that. But what about current knowledge? So say I've just taught histograms, for example, and I want to see whether my kids have grasped it because I need to know whether I can move on, perhaps with a more challenging question, perhaps with some applications and so on. If I ask a diagnostic question and um, all my students choose the answer B and, they, and B is the correct answer, what does that tell me? Well, I think it tells me that in that particular moment, my students have understood the concept. All right, maybe they've got loads of cues, maybe it's recent in their memory. But in that particular moment, I believe I have enough evidence to move on and progress with the lesson. Do I have enough evidence to say they've learnt that? No, I don't. But that's why I'm going to revisit that. I'm going to revisit it maybe at the start of the next lesson. I'm going to revisit it three weeks later, six weeks later, five months later. The beauty of doing no stakes tests or of doing diagnostic questions is it's quick. It's so easy to revisit something. But in that moment, if my students are getting it right, and particularly if I ask them to explain their reasoning, and particularly if the question's a good question, if it's got good distractors, then if my kids are getting it right, I have evidence in that lesson to move on. Because if I don't, what the flipping heck am I gonna do? I'm never gonna know. I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna be teaching on autopilot and that shouldn't be teaching. AFL is responsive teaching. I've got to be responding to what my students are saying. And all right, it's not perfect evidence of what they've learned, but it's the best I've got. So I'm gonna move on, but then I'm gonna come back and come back and come back. So that's the first thing to say. Now, the second thing to say is, all right, you can maybe argue that if students get one of those questions right immediately after you've taught something, it's not great evidence of what they've learned. But I tell you what, if they get it wrong, it is flipping good evidence of misconceptions that they've got. 
So whilst you not whilst you not be a, may be able to infer something definite about what kids have learnt if they've got it right, I'm pretty sure you can infer something about their misunderstandings if it's a good question if they get it wrong. So I would argue you learn more from their wrong answers than their right answers if you are asking a question immediately after you've taught something. And this feeds into exit tickets as well. There was a, at the recent maths conf and there was a wonderful session that I was following on Twitter um, all about um, exit tickets. But this brings up this problem again. What's the point of an exit ticket? Because all you're assessing is uh, performance. That's true. So I'm going to say two things there. Firstly, Fair enough, but if kids are getting it wrong, you're certainly learning something. So it's the valid tool uh, f for that. And secondly, what's wrong with delaying an exit ticket? I quite like this idea. What's wrong with them? Um, so you teach a lesson on Monday, but let's give Monday's exit ticket. Let's give it on Friday or the following Monday. And then all of a sudden we're tapping into the, the uh, benefits of spacing. So there's nothing wrong with delaying exit tickets. There's nothing wrong with exit tickets as a whole, but we've just got to make sure, and again, apologies if this sounds obvious, we've just got to make sure that we're not just assessing in one particular time interval. The worst time to assess somebody is straight after you've taught it, if you want to get information about what they've learnt. So just make sure you do it two or three more times in the future. So I hope that's kind of cleared that up. It's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating area. I'm a bit obsessed with it. But yeah, that's where I currently stand on assessment for learning. I could completely flip and change my mind in the next couple of weeks, but who knows. Anyway, what about spacing? Now, I asked Robert and Elizabeth um, for an optimal spacing schedule. It was the most popular question requested on Twitter. And it's really, really difficult. Um, I came across a paper when I was putting together my research page on my website. It's got a catchy title, this, ready? Spacing Effects in Learning, a Temporal Ridgeline of Optimal Retention uh, by Capida and Al. And it's, it's a lovely paper, but it's quite complex. It's got a really tricky formula. I love a formula, but there's all kinds of things floating around there. However... I came across the most wonderful blog post I think I've ever seen in my life. It's by a teacher called Damien Benny. He's a, a science teacher. And essentially, he's taken this paper and transformed it into a practical experiment that he's using with his kids. So he's got his year 10 science class and he's introducing lag and retrieval homeworks and spacing lessons. And I've put a link to this blog post um, in the show notes. And I'm only gonna say a little bit about it here because it's absolutely wonderful. But basically he, he uses the function that's uh, been presented in the computer paper and he plots a graph to show um, all different space, optimal spacing intervals. Uh, for example, if you are, you've just finished teaching a topic today and you've got a test in 60 days, then the formula in the graph, and it's really clear, suggests that the optimal time to restudy or re retest that material will be 10 days, and that leaves you 50 days until the test. Whereas if you've got a test in say 114 days, then the optimal uh, time to retest is 14 days, which then leaves you um, uh, an initial period after that of 100 days. And this ratio isn't constant. It in fact, it in fact falls. So the longer uh, the test is, the smaller the ratio from when you should retest it um, until the actual test is taken. I'm explaining that really badly. The, the, the blog post itself is excellent. So if you're, if you're looking for actual practical guidance that says, I'm finishing my test here, uh, sorry, I'm finishing teaching the topic here, I'm taking my test here, when should I actually uh, retest the students? This provides the answer. And then he also digs into the even more useful scenario with what happens if I want to retest them twice and three times. So if we take what Robert and Elizabeth said about this, combine it with this blog post, hopefully we're getting some somewhere towards figuring out what an optimal spacing schedule may be. 
Next thing I want to talk about, whew, to have a cup of tea here at this point, I know I'm going on, but I, this is important, this, I think. Interleaving. Now, flipping egg, I've had a bit of a revelation based on this. So let me see if I can explain this, right? I used to think the best thing you could possibly do was to teach a topic, teach the basic skills of a topic, and I would do that using an explicit instruction, example problem pairs and model modeling and so on. And then I would give the students more challenging questions that would hopefully help them be able to apply that skill. So I'll give you an example. I would teach Pythagoras, do all the basics, find a hypotenuse, find the non, uh, find one of the shorter sides. Everyone's happy. All the basics, and then I would do the application questions of Pythagoras. And surprise, surprise, it will be like, how long's this ladder leaning against the wall? Oh, look over there. There's a, a flipping boat in the sea or something. Let's work out the distance from this boy. All the classics, and that will be under the title of Pythagoras application questions. So I will cover the basics, then cover the Pythagoras application questions. And I thought that was the best way to get students comfortable with recognizing the deep structure of problems. My logic was, if you show students different Pythagoras questions with different surface structures, one's about a ladder, one's about a boat, blah, 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 then they will learn to recognize the commonalities between those questions and hence will recognize the deep structure managing to avoid the distracting influences of the surface structure. Sounds perfect, right? But if you listen to what Robert was saying at the end when he described the most interesting piece of research he's found, it turns out that that probably isn't the best way to do it for a very good reason. And again, let, let's relate this back to Pythagoras. <laughs> if I'm doing, if I've taught Pythagoras and then I say, right, now let's look at some applications. Here's a ladder leaning against the wall. How do you reckon you solve that? Well, it's probably going to be Pythagoras, right? Because I've just flipping taught them Pythagoras. And then if I say, right, here's a boat in the sea. How far away is it from that boy? How do you reckon you work this one out, everybody? Oh, is it Pythagoras, sir? Yes, it is Pythagoras. I've just flipping taught you Pythagoras. So we're not actually getting the kids to apply Pythagoras because that's not the skill. The skill isn't applying Pythagoras. The skill is recognizing when we've got to apply it and then applying it. Because in an exam or in any other scenario, we're not going to have a big flipping high neon flashing sign saying this is Pythagoras. Kids have got to recognize when it is. So am I actually doing them the best job by bundling and batching questions with the same deep structure together? Probably not, because as Robert said, and again, I've read up on the papers on this um, since, and they're on my research page. What's more important than spotting the commonalities is spotting the differences, being able to distinguish between the different questions. So here's my takeaway from this. And this, honestly, this has been a profound change for me. I think it's better to now batch together questions with the same surface structure, but different deep structures immediately after you've taught kids the basics. Same surface structure, different deep structures. Now, I know what you're saying. How the flipping heck are you going to do that? Well, let's take Pythagoras, seeing as I'm getting a bit obsessed with this. I would teach them the basics. And then instead of giving them a ladder and a flipping boat and all this kind of stuff, let's give them three isosceles triangles. 
The first one, I'll say to them, right, I want you to work out the size of one of the base angles. So I'm using angle properties in an isosceles triangle. The second one, I'll say, I want you to work out the area of this um, isosceles triangle. So I'm using um, area of a triangle formula. The third one, then I'll say, I want you to work out the um, vertical height of this isosceles triangle. And that's the one that requires Pythagoras. So the surface structures look similar. It's all involving an isosceles triangle. But now I am testing students' ability or I'm developing students' ability to spot the differences between these and hence realize which one they need to use Pythagoras for. But it's better than that because I'm also bringing into play angles in a triangle and area in a triangle. I'm tapping into the benefits of, of interleaving and spacing because it's probably been a while since I've done those, done those topics before. So it's been a bit of a profound change for me there. So I'm no longer batching together application questions of the same uh, deep structure. I am mixing it around a bit so kids learn to distinguish and not just spot commonalities. It's been a big change for me that. I hope that made sense. And the last thing I'm going to say is motivation. Now, I touched on this with Robert and Elizabeth. And it sounds like a question they get asked a lot. And it's something I, I think about loads here. Is it good for learning to be difficult all the time for students? And Robert made the point straight away. He's not saying learning should be difficult. It's desirably difficult. And I think that's an important distinction because, again, a lot of the reading I've done suggests that a key predictor of students' motivation is achievement. It doesn't tend to work so well as in prediction the other way around. It's, it's not the case that um, if kids are motivated, they achieve. But it is often the case that if kids achieve, they're motivated. And one of the main drivers of that is their achievement and the sense that they can achieve, their self-efficacy. When they approach a problem, have they got a chance? Do they think, all right, I can do this, or if I work hard, I will be able to do it. And there's a danger that if learning's difficult all the time, kids are gonna get switched off by that. Who wouldn't if, you, if you're always kind of hit by failure? I think, by the way, as teachers, we get a bit obsessed with failure. I don't always think struggle and failure are a good thing. I think students need to taste success. And Robert touched upon this himself. In a test, give two or three easy questions. Give, at the start, give kids a sense of the success and so the more kind of can cope with the failure, if that makes sense. Listen, struggle is crucial. Learning needs to be difficult, but I think kids need to taste a bit of success first. And I think the key to all this, if you're going to use desirable difficulties, if you're going to use testing, spacing, interleaving, variation, all the wonderful things that have been shown to really improve students' memory, I think the key is you've got to tell the kids why you're doing it. You've got to say to the kids, especially if you're doing a pre-test and flipping it. Pre I cannot believe, by the way, pre-testing. You give a kid a test on something they've never seen before. It then, even no matter what mark they get, no matter what um, questions they get right or wrong, it's then going to make them better understand the material when you present it to them and retain it better. That's amazing. But if you're going to do that, you've got to tell the kids why you're doing it. You've got to say things like, Listen, I'm not giving you this test to assess. It's not a, a test of how well you can do. I'm not, you're not going to get in trouble if you get two out of ten. If anything, I'm not expecting you to do brilliant. But listen, this is a learning tool. This is going to be brilliant. This is going to make you access and retrieve and understand the material far better. Likewise, when you're doing interleaving, it feels flipping hard. Spacing feels flipping hard. Batching's nice. Batching, oh, it's so comforting. Think about me uh, ladder leaning against the wall and the boy, it's so nice to recognize what you're doing. Interleaving's flipping hard, but you say to the kids, I know it's hard. 
that's that's the whole point of it. It's hard because this is better for you. And I think being open and honest with the kids, maybe showing them some research if you feel that's appropriate, showing them a graph or whatever, but just saying to the kids, look, I know this is hard, but the fact that it is hard is making you learn this better. And eventually the kids will see it themselves in the results. But Robert made the point that these strategies feel inefficient to kids. They feel difficult. They don't feel like they're working as opposed to more ineffective strategies. So in informing your students of why you're doing it, I think is absolutely crucial. Anyway, I hope some of that made sense. It's all ideas I'm playing around with. Honestly, it's one of those things. The more I read, the more I speak to, the more I'm changing my mind all the time. But but hopefully that was of some use. And listen, I'm going to take take a break and shut up now. All that remains for me to do is once again, thank my absolutely world-class, wonderful guests, uh, Professor Robert and Professor Elizabeth Bjork. Also, I want to thank um, Podcast Tunes for the wonderful jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And the fun doesn't stop there. I have got some incredible guests lined up for the next few episodes. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you're getting something out of these podcasts. And please spread the word. Give us a review if you can. And I shall see you for another interview shortly. Take care of yourselves. Bye. Bye.